up these days. You're just about have to say that, don't you? Wherever you've got the scriptures recorded, open it up to Romans chapter 14. And um, we're going to read the uh, first 12 verses. Because um, the subject that I've got written up on your screen here uh, is what we'll be dealing with. And um, so just keep that in mind as we read these verses. Follow with me. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Now accept the Lord who is weak in... Sorry. Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord and he who eats does so for the Lord for he gives thanks to God and he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself for if we live, we live for the Lord or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9. Now to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Accepting others. We've been, um, ever since chapter 12 and uh, beginning of chapter 12, we have been looking at um, what it is to to love one another and um, and what it is to, yeah, just to be that to our fellow brethren but also to be like that, loving towards those who are not so lovable and uh, to be loving even our enemies, etc. And we progress through chapter 12 and, and even into 13 with that theme in mind that we're meant to be a community of people as believers who express love as Jesus Christ expressed his love. But now as we come to 14, we are going to be looking at some of those things that put a roadblock in our love for one another. And, and it's all about acceptance. You know, people love being accepted, right? They love being accepted, all of us do, and valued by others. Um, and, and you can go anywhere, no matter what social setting or social group you want to name, people value being accepted. You know, we're, I believe honestly that as human beings we've been wired by God to be accepted by others. 
And we thrive on that. We thrive on being accepted. And, and some, some groups, some people will even go to, to great extremes to be accepted or to be part of a tribe, so to speak. Whether they get the same tattoos on their arms or whether they wear the same patches on their motorcycle back, back, backs or, or whatever. People go to great extremes and do really sometimes gross things, sinful things, all in the name of being accepted. So really as human beings, we're social beings through and through. And that's okay because God wired us that way. But the problem is our sinfulness causes all sorts of chaos in this department and more than often resulting in relational disaster. This often happens through a mere failure to accept others and their differences as we go about our lives. And, and this failure to accept others and their differences, it's in, instigated international wars, it's instigated civil wars, it's instigated family feuds, it's instigated uh, marriage breakups, and the list could go on and on just because people do not accept others and their differences. But Paul in this chapter 14, and actually it goes right into chapter 15, draws our attention to the importance of believers in Jesus Christ accepting one another in the local church. Okay? So this is where we want to draw down and look at. This is what he's on about here. And if there ever was a people group, might I say, if there ever was a people group where acceptance, and I'm talking about genuine acceptance, authentic acceptance, if there ever was a people group where this acceptance should be an action, we have, believers have, every reason to be engaged in that. You see, folks, once we were sinners, right? We still are, but once we were lost, we're on the broad road that led to destruction. We're heading to a lost eternity. But because of God's grace and God's mercy alone, we are now accepted by Him. Don't you love that? And because of God's acceptance of us, with all our faults, and as believers we are not perfect, right? I know that and you know that. And we all have differences. I know that and you know that. But God has accepted us and because he has accepted us, he is very, very concerned that we accept one another. Paul says in the next chapter, verse 7 of the next chapter, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. That's pretty, pretty clear, right? Matter of fact, this acceptance of one another was established by Jesus himself on a prior occasion. This is how seriously he takes this subject, this topic. And he brought it up in the, the Matthew's Gospel uh, records there where Jesus brings the subject us up in the, matter of a, in the way of a warning. Actually, it's quite a severe warning. And this is what he says. Whoever shall offend one of these little ones who believe in me it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, don't get carried away with that verse and thinking that the little ones there are speaking of infants and, and babies or maybe just little children. He is not. He is not. 
If you look, if you look at that verse carefully, it's, it's about believers. It says, these little ones who believe in me. So speaking about believers here, he likens believers to children when he's saying this. So, so what he is saying is this. I am so serious about how you treat one another, how you accept one another, that you would be better off drowned than ever knowingly offend another believer. That's how serious the Lord takes us. It's pretty heavy, right? So the Lord establishes a very important truth how careful we need to be in not offending or or looking down on other believers. And um, here in our text that we have, going right through to verse 13 of chapter 15, the Apostle Paul picks up on the same important issue and, and deals with some of those things that hinders our accepting of one another. But before he looks into the details of accepting other believers... I think it's important that we understand that this whole text here and into chapter 15 is not about the biggies, the big sins, like moral sin. It's not about blatant theological error error that, that believers can be guilty of. This is not about overt sin that wrecks churches if not dealt with biblically. This section is not about the kind of sins that can hijack everything. It's about the kind of sins that can hijack our acceptance of others. And so this section is all about an area that causes confusion, it causes chaos... Uh, This is about that which causes horrible tension and and can equally wreck the life and testimony of any local church. Putting it simply, this section is all about personal preferential issues. You got that? Personal preferential issues. Issues that are not specifically commanded or forbidden in Scripture. You need to understand that too. This is what this section is about. Issues that have more to do with tradition, personal opinions. That's what Paul has in mind here. Personal preferences and standards are often that which puts roadblocks to our acceptance of one another, folks. And so Paul sees this issue as being the recipe for disaster when used and abused by the weak and strong believers respectively. And we'll see that the weak and strong are mentioned here. Paul focuses in on the, on the weak and strong believer and believe me, every church has them. Uh, the weak believer meaning those who because of some preference based on maybe his or her religious nurture or their life experience. These folk tend to fail to understand and fully enjoy his or her present freedom in Jesus Christ. This believer tends to be and somewhat narrow-minded and legalistic, can I say. This person struggles to find or understand and tolerate the spiritual liberty of other Christians. This believer in our day 
tends to be intolerant of Christians who may, for instance, go to the movies or drink beer or wear designer clothes or listen to contemporary music. And there's a whole host of other lifestyle choices which are deemed by the weak Christian to be forbidden fruit, as it were. Then on the other side of the coin, there's always the other side of the coin. Then on the other side of the coin, you have the strong believer, which Paul refers to here. And this person does understand his freedom or her freedom in Jesus Christ. This believer enjoys his freedom in that he is not threatened or, or, or confined by any traditional no-no or any non-moral ceremony and practice or any historical ritual. They're not confined by them. They're not restricted by those things. This believer enjoys his or her liberty in Christ to the full, while the weak believer is tremendously confined. That's just a, a basically a broad definition of what Paul has in mind here when he's contrasting and speaking of the weak believer and the strong believer. But this is where the potential fat hits the fan in churches. Tension and non-acceptance acceptance begins when the weak believer comes along and, and sees and accuses the strong of abusing and using his freedom to satisfy his fleshly desires. That's, he says that's what you do. And that can't happen, by the way. Don't get me wrong. That can't happen. And the strong believer comes along and, and he sees a, a so-called weak believer and, and accuses him or accuses her of being too narrow, too legalistic and, 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 and failing to understand and to enter into the freedom that Christ has provided in salvation. That's what the strong believer does to the weak. So Paul in our present passage addresses this matter by speaking to both types of believers and their attitudes towards one another. That's what he does. His first counsel, you will note, is to the strong believer. You say, why is that? Simply this, is because the strong believer, the one who is uh, mature in the, more mature in the faith, is better equipped to understand truth and apply it, or, so, or should be. And here Paul gives us, in this section, four reasons why both strong and weak believers are to accept one another. Okay? And so we have... Um, The first reason is the Lord accepts each believer, so should we. Okay? We have this in verses 1 to 3. You know, the Apostle makes it very clear. Actually, he gives a command here. This is what it is. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. That strong believers, that is the spiritually mature believers, are to accept the weak. That's the first command here. And this description of weak believers, as I've pointed out, points out to those who are weak in the faith. In other words, more than likely new Christians, but it can tend to be Christians who have been saved for many, many, many years. And in the environments that they mix with, they nurture them and they don't move past and move into their freedom. And so they, haven't, they do not understand or enjoy their freedom in Jesus Christ. They, they don't have any freedom from their traditional rites and ceremonies and, and external rules that are man-made. Uh, that have nurtured them powerfully over the lifetime. Well, Paul commands believers who are spiritually mature to lovingly accept these people. Now, this command does not mean 
that mature believers never ever discuss freedom in Christ with those who, who fall into that weak Christian category, that those who are restrained by uh, or under some kind of religious bondage, so to speak. But what he does tell us that we are never to use that discussion for the purpose of dumping on them our judgment for their so-called underdeveloped yet very sincere opinions. And I say sincere because in both camps, whether strong or weak, you have some very sincere opinions, right? We are not to judge them in this manner. This, you know, if we do, you know what it's going to do? It'll only offend, and you know what? To give offence is a sinful recipe which begs for God's judgment. Paul picks up on this tension, focusing on one of the issues that was going down at the Roman church at this time when he wrote this letter. Some believers in Rome, obviously the more mature believers, felt free in their faith to eat all things. You see that in verse 2. And might I say, this is the first example of what our freedom in Christ looks like, folks. It simply means that there's nothing needs to be excluded from your meal table. Praise the Lord for that. I love my shellfish. <laughs> and um, you're free to eat everything, anything. The Apostle Paul, you know, he, this is not new. He, Apostle Paul had to learn this. He's a classic example of a, of a, of a believer that had to learn this. And, and he, was well on, he was well on into his apostolic ministry and, and the Lord from heaven had to appear to him three times in a vision to teach him this very truth. He had to tell him that to eat meat that has been once pronounced clean, it was kosher and he can eat it. Three times it took for him to get that through. You read that about that in Acts chapter 10. The new covenant of Jesus Christ includes no dietary or ceremonial restrictions. But here we have people in the Roman church, a little bit like Peter was, who felt their faith confined their diet to only vegetables. This restriction, by the way, was not only observed by Jewish converts, but also some who were once pagans and uh, who before conversion, these guys were no doubt into offering meat to idols, right? As a way of sacrifice, as a way of earning supposed righteousness. And so they get saved, they get soundly converted, they're born again. And for years and years and years, their life and their nurture, they've been offering this food to idols and they knew very well that that same meat goes to the market and it's put up for sale. And to them, to those people, to purchase such stuff was repulsive to them. It was sacrilege to them. They felt sincerely strong against eating such meat. You see, folks, these weak believers, but sincere believers, were being guided by conscience and a lack of understanding of their new freedom in Christ. That's what's guiding them. We can understand this, right? We can understand how it goes down. I want you to take a quantum leap just to help you understand it. I want you to take a quantum leap from their time into ours. Bridge the gap, the historical gap here. And, and you will find we will struggle with stuff 
like this as well, and the same, same tensions are still engaged. Does our freedom in Christ allow us to go, movie, go to movies, to love secular music, and to dance the night away? Some will say yes, some will say no. Does our freedom in Christ allow us to drink alcohol, smoke tobacco, and join social clubs? Some will say yes, some will say no. Does our freedom in Christ allow us to send our kids to public schools, play drums and guitars in church, and to be up here without wearing a tie? Some will say yes, and some will say no. See what I'm getting at? But while you are thinking, and before you land yourself in any tribe, listen to what the Lord says in verse 3. I love how the ESV translates this. This is what he says. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. How clear is that? In other words, folks, the response of the more mature believer is never look down with disdain and contempt on the weaker brother because of his restrictive choices. And the weaker brother is never to judge or accuse the more mature of being irresponsible and unspiritual because of his liberated choices. Why? Why is that? Well, that's a good question. Because as the text says right at the end, for God has accepted him. You see that? For God has accepted him. In other words, because God has accepted and has no issues with those whom he has called in the gospel, what right have any of us to stand our ground on peripheral issues and accuse, judge, or treat with disdain any of God's chosen beloved people? That's the deal. The Lord accepts every believer and so should we. The second reason why we should accept believers is the Lord sustains each believer, so why the attitude? We see this in verse 4 and... Um, the simple reason here is that we should accept one another because it's the Lord that sustains, upholds and keeps and it will, He will glorify His people. It will not be us. I'm not going to glorify you and you're not going to glorify me. I'm not going to sustain you in, your, in your, your nearness and your relationship with the Lord and, and you won't sustain me in my relationship with the Lord. Every single one of us, whether strong in the faith or weak, are in God's enabling strength to keep us and to hold us on the true path of righteousness. It's only by God's grace that we are kept, right? All of our righteousness, even all the righteousness and goodness that we can muster up and engender is as filthy rags in God's sight, it tells us in Isaiah 64. Both strong and weak are dependent on God's gift of righteousness in Christ, not only to save us, but to sustain us, to keep us, to carry us, to shelter us under the wings of the Almighty where His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark against the fleshly efforts of self-righteousness. Praise God for His sustaining grace. So folks, how dare we have an attitude of superiority over a brother or a sister and judge who is spiritual and who is not. How dare we come in and say, because of your stringent, conservative, legalistic ways, you will never be able to serve the master effectively. 
Or because of your worldly choices, here's the other side of the coin, because of your worldly choices and your loose living lifestyle, you cannot be and will not be a faithful servant of God. It's not an option. It's not for us even to consider those things. All believer as whose servants? Whose servants are we, folks? You're not my servant. I'm not your servant. We're servants of the Lord, right? That's who we belong to. We're the Lord's servants. And we have no right to criticize and judge the servant of another, the text says. Our servant is the Lord in heaven. I read a story of how Mr. C.H. Spurgeon one time was confronted by a brother who criticized his action for, for traveling most occasions on a first-class railway carriage from one place to another. And, um, and he was this other brother who was, he was sitting in the back, you know, he was in the, in the third class and he was travelling with Mr. Spurgeon. And he said, Mr. Spurgeon, what are you doing up here? I am riding back in the third class carriage taking care of the Lord's money. Spurgeon replied, and I am up here in the first class carriage taking care of the Lord's servant. <laughs> Let's stop dumping on other believers and let God deal with each of his servants how and when and kindly as he likes. Our master is the one whom we will stand before, that's for sure. He is the one who sustains us and will make us stand, right? He will. Paul has already spoken of this powerful sustaining of the Lord in Romans 8.35, which we've already had a few months ago, where he asked those rhetorical questions, you remember them, and I love this. And he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of the sword? He's asking us a whole host of questions. Nothing will separate us. Nothing will interfere with that sustaining hand of God for his beloved people. And then he makes this clear promise of the sustaining power of God for his servants in verse 39. He says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, praise God for his love. How sustaining it is. Paul again mentions this grand truth to the Philippians and you'll know this verse too. Philippians 1 verse 6 and it says, And I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to perfection in the day of Jesus Christ. Folks, our master sustains all his servants and our opinionated evaluation does not affect in the slightest their standing before the Lord. He will make them stand. We don't. Let's have a humble attitude toward our fellow brethren as the Lord has employed all of us, every single one of us. We're employed by him in his service and we will individually be accountable to him ultimately. Not to us or our opinions of what true spirituality looks like. Okay, and the third reason for um, the third reason for uh, is this. Come on, it must be a weak signal here. Yeah, the Lord is sovereign to every believer, so don't interfere. And we see this in verses five to nine. What we have clarified in this section, uh, what we, ha- we do see clarified in this section, is whether strong or weak. A, a sincere believer can feel free or not feel free to do certain things, whether that's an option or not. You know, why is that? Why is that? It's because the same motive of pleasing the Lord is what drives our preferences and choices. You can understand that, right? You want to please the Lord? 
And so, um, and as you go through life, there will be choices that you do make and opinions that you do have that you believe sincerely and honestly that this is what pleases the Lord. And that opinion and that choice might be totally different than the opinion of a choice in another believer who believes honestly and sincerely that the choice and opinion he has about a certain matter is what is honouring and pleasing to the Lord. That's the deal. That's how it goes down. It's the same motive. In other words, neither tribe is more or less spiritual of their, of, of, because of convictions about the kinds of things that we've already been speaking about. Being a strong believer is not in this sense synonymous with being spiritual and in the same sense neither is a weak believer synonymous with being carnal or unspiritual. And that was a problem in Rome, as in many churches today. Some believers elevate themselves on their own spiritual barometer. That's what happens. They place themselves in one group while others are placed in another. And that is divisive, folks. It's really divisive. And it's a recipe for division, which Paul here refutes. He gives another example of how certain days were considered holy by some. That's obviously the weak. They were on this occasion, on this, on this uh, historic matter, and uh, while others, supposedly the strong, they treated all days the same. No doubt, Jewish holy days like the Sabbath and and other special days in their calendar, like the Day of Atonement and and the Passover, etc. Yeah, they felt that they they had to keep these days. They clung on to them because there was so much powerful nurture that they had for all their lives. And so they brought that over into their Christian life and, and they clung on to it. And even the pagans had their special religious days too, by the way. And with some believers, those folks who are now believers, saw good reason to observe and to hang on to. It's so probably a little bit opposite, but this is a little bit like believers today who make much out of Christmas. Make much out of Christmas Day while others don't make anything out of it and even deny its true Christian foundations. We all have opinions about that, right? So how do we treat believers who don't celebrate Christmas and refuse to have a special Easter service and do not pay any heed to the ecclesiastical calendar of the church at all? How do we treat them? We've got our opinions on that, so have they. Do we despise them? Do we relegate them to a tribe that is worldly and carnal and unspiritual or, or maybe legalistic and ignorant and, and kind of laugh at them? Is that what we do? Yeah, this chapter has really pulled me up because I've been guilty of some of these things. I've been really guilty and I've confessed that to the Lord and, uh, and it's really made me see things as I believe they should be. Do we put these folk down here and ourselves up here on our spiritual barometer? Well, Paul tells us otherwise, folks. He tells us otherwise. He says this in verse 5. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You see that? In other words, Christmas Day, Holy Days, observing them or not, what you eat or what you don't eat, being fully convinced in your mind or your heart or your conscience, it's all synonymous there, about the rightness of your convictions by giving thanks to your sovereign God that's what makes the preference right or wrong. It's your conscience, folks. 
You see, folks, when matters that are not specifically commanded or forbidden in Scripture, our conscience, our minds are what rightly guides us. And this is really important. And by the way, it's wrong to go against our conscience in such matters. Because our conscience, you know what our conscience does? Our conscience represents what we actually believe to be what is right. And to go against what we believe to be right is sinful. And what is also sinful is when we try to impose our personal convictions on others because we tempting them to go against their God-given consciences. It can get a bit complicated, but that's how it is. So in our accepting of one another, even though we have different opinions on certain matters in this church, there, there, can be, there needs to be a loving acceptance. As I said right at the beginning, that doesn't mean to say we refuse to talk about issues but there can be a discussion about the gospel and the liberty that the gospel brings. That's why Paul, you know, he warns the strong believers in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, verse 9 to 12. This is what he warns strong believers. He says, but take care, because this is a danger. This is a trap that many believers fall into and they abuse it. But Paul says, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak for if someone sees you who has knowledge, that's a, someone sees you, uh, you who have knowledge as a Christian, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened or be encouraged to eat things sacrificed to idols? That's the question. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose Christ's sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Pretty serious, right? You see, folks, when we deal with issues like these, we are answerable to the Lord alone for the convictions we have and act upon. The Lord is sovereign over our lives. He is. And everything in them. That's what verses 7 and 8 says. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. How sovereign can you get in that? In life and death. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is paramount in all our lives, folks, which must include our preferences, our choices, and the way we use them when faced with those who have different convictions on these matters. This brings us to our last reason. The Lord will judge every believer, so why be critical? We see this in verses 10 to 13. You know, it's a terrible thing for men to play God often unknowingly. Many believers do this. We can do this easily. I can do this. It is all too often we easily fall into a, a critical attitude toward those who have different convictions about preferential matters. Paul reminds us here with more rhetorical questions in our text. He says, why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? 
In other words, if we all belong to the Lord and we live and die to Him and will be judged by Him, what right have any of us to enter into judgment? After all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You see that? We're all going to stand before Him individually. And it's there that our motives and our preferences and our convictions about such things, they are going to undergo His all-seeing eye as He scrutinizes into the innermost recesses of our hearts. So who am I to criticize in the here and now? How careful we need to be, right? My dear people, the work of a Christian is to serve the Lord. That's our work. Certainly not to waste time and sinfully usurp our authority by judging believers with our self-righteous standard. No way. And so as God's servants, and that's who we are, this morning, as you're in your seats right now, if necessary, we need to repent here, as I have done this week, of any critical self-righteous attitude and, and learn, learn to accept other believers. Even when they have different opinions and preferences on peripheral matters different than ours may the God receive the glory right for he is Lord of us all thank you very much for your kind attention